Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Raj Sisodia, co-author of many books, including Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business, and Firms of Endearment, How World-Class Companies Profit from Passion and Purpose. Raj is a very dear friend of mine, someone I met many years ago when attending a Conscious Capitalism event. Since that time, Raj's work and the work of his colleagues has become, well, let's just say the gospel for our team here at Y Scouts. The future that Raj envisions, talks about, and writes about so eloquently is a future we should all aspire towards. Having the opportunity to spend time with Raj, both during this interview and outside of it, has been a real gift to say the least. I hope you are ready for an amazing podcast interview with someone who's had a tremendous impact on my life. I bring you Raj Sisodia. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Raj Sisodia. Raj, wonderful to have you with us here today. Thank you, Brian. I'm very happy to be with you. So, you know, there's probably a few folks uh, who might have been living under a rock over the last decade or so who, who don't know who you are. And you've had a really interesting journey. And in some of the research and having uh, known you now for a little while, uh, I think it would be awesome to start with if you could share just a little bit about your journey uh, with perhaps some um, focus around uh, having grown up in India, studying as an electrical engineer, to what has now led you into this conscious business pursuit, which uh, in some ways I'm sure has some connectivity to electrical engineering, but in many ways I think to uh, to most of us is is quite a bit different. Maybe you can maybe you can start there for us. Well, I do get a charge out of it, you know. Uh, that connection. <laughs> you know, it's 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 funny how life evolves. Um, Somebody had told me the direction things would have to have taken. I would have never believed it. I would, although I would have loved it because it's certainly uh, what I do now uh, resonates strongly with who I was as a child. Um, I was kind of this uh, idealistic kid, you know, uh, wanted to get along with everybody, wanted the world to be a certain way, peaceful. Why do we have to have all this conflict? You know, why can't we have a world that's built upon these kinds of values? And was always told that that's impractical, you know, that the world is a rough and tough place and, you know, you cannot survive like this. You know, you have to forget all of that stuff and, you know, compromise on all those things that are kind of inherent to who you are. And so I suppressed a lot of that. Uh, and I grew up mostly in India uh, until the age seven, actually. And then we did live abroad for five years. My father was a plant scientist, got his PhD in Canada. And uh, he left us when we were when I was quite little and came back to India by the time I was seven. And then we moved to Barbados for a couple of years. He was working on sugarcane research in California. Uh, he was working on wheat research in Canada and then back to India right around 1970. So I grew up from the age of 12 until uh, high school and college and grad school in India. And so I had kind of this blend of East and West perspectives, you know. 
and then came back to this country uh, for my PhD. I ended up getting an engineering degree because, you know, in India in the 1970s was kind of a semi-socialist state with nothing much happening. The economy was dead, uh, barely growing at all. Most major sectors were nationalized. The, ma- the uh, marginal tax rate the year I graduated high school was 97.5%. Wow. You can believe it. Wow. So 97 and a half cents of every dollar was, ta- was taken in taxes. Beyond, you know, above a certain threshold, right? So obviously everybody didn't pay that. But if you had, you know, a high income uh, above a certain level, it was that was the highest marginal tax rate. Wow. Right? But you can just imagine what kind of an impact that has. Sure. And of course, everything was controlled and regulated and licensed and only two car companies in the country and two companies that made uh, scooters. And, you know, you had like a five to 10 year waiting list if you wanted to buy those products. And quality wasn't good. And, you know, there was a thriving black market and everything just because of government control. You know, so all of this planted seeds in me of strong, um, and you know, also having lived in the U.S. and other places, uh, just a strong bias against government ownership and control of these kinds of things and recognizing what it does, perhaps with good intentions, but it doesn't work, right? And nationalizing the banks and nationalizing the airline and the government in the business of making bread and make, you know, providing milk and, you know, and everything they touched is turned to ashes, you know. It was, uh, it was terrible. So in those days, in that environment, your options were strictly limited. Coming out of high school, you know, if you showed any aptitude for math and science, you, know, you tried to get into one of the few good engineering, you know, there's a handful of sort of elite engineering schools in India. And if you were good in science and biology, then you tried to be a doctor. And if you weren't good in either of those things, then God help you and, you know, Maybe you get into a government service, you know, you get into the Indian administrative service and become a collector or whatever they were called. With lots of power, very little money, lots of corruption. So those were kind of your paths. So even though I really wasn't, I didn't have any real passion for engineering per se. Somebody had really asked me, what would you really want to do? Maybe be a journalist or something. But that really wasn't an option. So I ended up uh, going to engineering school because I got into one of those good schools and Spent five long years becoming an electrical electronics engineer. Again, I enjoyed certain aspects of it, but for the most part, you know, it really wasn't who I was. And so I ended up working as an engineer for some total of 29 days. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good trade-off, you know, five years of you know, hard, hard labor for 29 days of working. And I found out... You know, and I was really quite, you know, in those days there was no internet. I was in this little college town in the middle of the desert somewhere in India. You know. Didn't know much about the world. And found out that there's something called business school. And and that if you go to business school, your salary would double from what you got as an engineer. And probably work in an air-conditioned office. So that sounds pretty good to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was working in an electrical switchgear factory in hot and humid Bombay, you know. And uh, it was a tough grind, those 29 days. I don't know how I survived that. <laughs> <laughs> so then, just like with engineering, you know, there's a handful of business schools in India in those days. And the competition is fierce, you know. They take, like, the one I went to, they had 45 seats and uh, 7,000 applicants, you know. And fortunately, I was able to get into that. So I happily resigned my engineering job and went off to business school. And Again, I knew nothing about business, really. I soon discovered I didn't like finance, so I chose marketing. 
those were the two choices. There was also human resources. Again, that was kind of the third wheel. You know? And so I got my MBA in uh, in marketing, and uh, I had a job lined up in a, in a strategy firm in India. And then one day I come down to breakfast and I see a bunch of my friends dressed up on a Saturday, I think it was. You know, a day we didn't have classes. And I was in my pajamas, I think, still. And this was in the graduate dorm. And I said, where are you guys going on a holiday? We don't have class. They said, we're going to the U.S. Information Agency to pick up GMAT applications. I said, we're already doing our MBA. Why do you need to take the GMAT? I said, we want to apply for a Ph.D. in business in the U.S. I said, I didn't know you can do a Ph.D. in business. I said, give me five minutes. You know, I'm gonna, I'll change and I'll come with you there. Right? Because, you know, in those days, like I said, the economy was there. And if you had an opportunity to get to the U.S., uh, you took it, right? And I, did, I thought I didn't have that. I, I thought there were no options available to do that, you know, having gotten an MBA in India. So I, long story short, I went with those guys. There were 10 of us. And the irony is that I'm the only person out of that group of 10 that ends up coming to the U.S. to get a PhD. Wow. So had I not come down that morning, who knows? what trajectory life would have taken. Interesting. But so I came to Columbia and I started a PhD. And, but again, as you can see, none of this was driven by a master plan or, 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 or a real passion for anything. You know, it was just kind of the, the next opportunistic thing. Yeah, it's what it sounds like. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and maybe that, that's the world we were in in those days, although I'm sure there were friends of mine who did have a sense of mission and purpose in their life. But I really didn't discover any of that. So I got a PhD in marketing and I started teaching. I went to Columbia University and I started teaching at Boston University. And I liked some aspects of it, but still it wasn't, I didn't consider it my life's purpose, you know. It was just a job. And soon enough I started to find aspects of it that actually I did not like. I felt that marketing was very inauthentic in many ways. That there was a huge amount of waste and inefficiency and ineffectiveness. Just the sheer amount of money that we spend on marketing in this country. And what we do with it, what we say, how it's used, you know. Uh, there's also a lot of unethical practices. We routinely overpromise, underdeliver, you know. I mean, it's on the borderline of really lying about what we, what we're offering, right? It's like a hucksterism, a lot of it. And so my focus, I started to do work on marketing ethics and also on marketing productivity, efficiency, and effectiveness, and so that became bulk of my research focus for quite a while. How can we improve marketing practice, or at least not waste as much money? You know, because everybody else was spending less and doing more. If you look at manufacturing, or even if you look at uh, management, mm -hmm. you know, companies are becoming more efficient and effective over time. Yep. But in marketing, we were spending more and more, and yet customer loyalty, customer satisfaction had plateaued, customer loyalty had fallen deeply, and customer trust had plummeted coincident with the rise of marketing spending. I said, there's something wrong here. The more we spend on marketing, you know, the, the less trust and loyalty there is from customers. People are just willing to buy whatever is on sale, basically, right? Wherever there's a deal. There's no real connection there. Uh, so, so I started a series of projects around that, and then we did a study on the image of marketing because you know, my own father, he would say, my son is a professor of marketing, and he would put inverted quotes around marketing. <laughs> he was quite amused. You know? He said, I got a PhD in genetics, and you're getting a PhD in, well, what is this, ads and coupons? <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
So, I mean, there was a sense of like, this is, you know, this is, uh, is this really a socially worthwhile pursuit? Is the world a better place? Yeah. Is the world a better place because we spend a trillion dollars a year in this country on marketing in those days, 2007, when we did it. Right? And if you, if you do the math on that, so that's $3,300 per person in those days. So about $14,000 a family. Okay? Is being spent on your behalf on ads, coupons, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you look at it another way, it was the GDP of India, equal to the GDP of India. A billion people were living on what we were spending here on ads and coupons. Wow. Okay, for wow. 300 million people. Wow, that puts it uh, in perspective. Look at it another way. Another way to look at it that uh, it was more on a per capita basis than the income of 85% of the world's people. Wow. Right? So 85% of people in the world are living on less than what we're spending here on ads and coupons. I said, wow, that's a lot. So what are we getting? What are customers getting out of all of this? What are companies getting out of all of this? And what is society getting out of all of this? Well, ideally, you should have a positive answer on each of those. And as I did my research further on that, I found, you know, most customers, if you did a study on the image of marketing, 85% of people have a negative view of marketing. If it comes from marketing, it can't be true, right? It's not real, it's just marketing. We've all heard those phrases, right? Um, Companies, you know, if you look at the return on investment, etc., you know, if you look at response rates on coupons and, and the recall rates on advertisements and all those things, even email marketing over time, you know, everything is inefficient and ineffective, right? And uh, if you look at the impact on society, what has happened to our popular culture? You know, one thing a trillion dollars a year does buy is a huge impact on the culture. So, what is it doing to the psyches? of people, especially young people, especially young women. You know, a friend of mine has made a bunch of documentaries. Her name is Jean Kilborn, uh, called Killing Us Softly, which is about the impact of how women are depicted in advertising and what that has done to the psyche of young women, right? And how that has contributed to eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorders and depression and all kinds of things. Yeah, that shows up... Yeah, it, it shows up, uh, not to cut you off, it shows up, uh, I'm a father of, of two young daughters, and I see the way they emulate what they see, what they read, whether it's in a magazine or on their iPads, and uh, it, it, it truly does have an impact. Right, but marketing or marketers don't hold themselves accountable for that, right? Yeah. It's like, do whatever we have to do to sell more product. Yeah. You know, whether it's marketing to children, or, you know, all of that. So it just felt to me like, the toxic brew of stuff and you know there has to be a better way yeah and I then also I read this phrase that Peter Drucker had used uh, by the way we did a conference and then a book called does marketing need reform do we need to fundamentally reinvent this field of marketing right because the more we spend the worse it's getting nobody trusts us we have no see you know within the company outside the company with customers etc this profession seemed to be us seemed to us to be in a crisis mm-hmm um, and then I read this phrase that Peter Drucker said, you know, the, the rise of the consumer movement in America is the shame of marketing. Why should consumers have to organize themselves against a company if marketing is doing what, what we teach, which is to represent the well-being and the interests of customers, right? Marketing is supposed to represent and do and align what the company does with what's good for customers and thereby earn their custom. Thereby, you know, but that's not the reality, right? So he said, this is the shame of marketing. So I actually started a book called The Shame of Marketing. 
Okay. I'm sure you were uh, the most the most popular uh, <laughs> professor in your group. Marketing professor. I, know, I don't think I told my colleagues. And somebody said, oh, that's just way too over the top. So I, then I called it marketing malpractices. So it was basically going to be about, you know, all my research that I had done on efficiency, inefficiency, ineffectiveness, unethical, you know, how can we, and a little bit about what do we do about it. But for the most part, making the case in a book-length form about how everything wasn't working in marketing, you know. And you can imagine that that's a lot of negative energy, right? I mean, it was all. I also started a book called uh, Drugs Are Us, which was about marketing in pharmaceuticals. Because that's, if you look at where the worst example of all of this, it's in, it's in the drug industry. Yeah, absolutely. You know, companies are spending, I mean, they're some of the biggest spenders now with yep. direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. And you've seen all of those things. And if you watch the evening news, by the end of it, you will be convinced that you've got six new diseases every day. Right, and you have to take all these pills, and each one of them could kill you in 16 ways, right? Yeah, no, it's amazing. All these yeah. uh, quote-unquote side effects uh, seem yeah. to be minimized, and at the end of the day, these are these are real effects, not side effects. Right, so I mean, there's horrible un unethical practices in that industry, and every leading company has paid like multi-hundred million dollar, if not multi-billion dollar fines mm -hmm. for unethical, misleading advertising, which borders on the criminal. Because when people are dying, because you're choosing to market aggressively a drug for a condition for which it was not approved, right? And you're downplaying the side effects and so forth. And you're hiring, you're paying doctors to publish fake research. All of this is you know, a common practice. So anyway, I was really, and I had a special needs son who was on many of these meds and suffering the side effects, you know? So it was a little personal. So anyway, this is where I was around 2004, 2005, mired in this sort of self-hatred of what am I doing, you know? And how am I contributing to all these uh, uh, negative things in society? And then I got, I think, the most significant piece of advice I've had in my life. And my mentor and co-author, uh, Jag Sheth, who's a professor at Emory, one of the most eminent marketing scholars in the world, uh, he told me, Raj, in this country, people want to hear about the solution. People don't want to hear about the problem. Right? And you've been very focused on the problem. Do we have a solution for this? Right? And that was a simple question, but a huge aha for me because all I said, oh, wow, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So instead of calling it marketing malpractices, I just took the same book proposal and I changed the title to In Search of Marketing Excellence. Right? And I said, okay, we recognize that most companies do it wrong and they spend a lot of money and get very little and there's all these negative effects. So who are the companies doing it right and what can we learn from them? So that led us to a bunch of companies, Whole Foods being one of the early ones, which were spending very little money on marketing but had outstanding customer loyalty and trust, which is the opposite of the norm. Right. And we started to look at what are they doing? How are they accomplishing this? Right. Initially, the scope of our uh, investigation was just looking at their marketing function. And we soon realized they barely have a marketing function. There was no chief marketing officer. There was no ad agency. They spent 90% less than the industry average. And 90% of that was spent at the stores, not at headquarters. And 90% of that was their community outreach activities. That's what they thought of as marketing. And it seemed to be working beautifully, right? Very high customer loyalty and trust. But as we expanded our lens, a little bit to understand more deeply, we said, well, you know, there's actually, it's not just about marketing. Uh, their employees are equally loyal and trusting. There's a very low turnover there. You know? 
and suppliers, you know, are partners and, and long-term stable relationships with the company. Uh, their communities love them and they're deeply embedded in their communities, etc. So we discovered that there was a stakeholder mindset at, that, at, the, at these companies, several others as well. So I, and then we looked at, uh, you know, what else could we say about their business? We found that each of them kind of had a mercenary, I'm sorry, a missionary zeal. You know, that they were not uh, businesses with a mission, they were missions with a business, in a way. In other words, they were trying to change the world somehow. Whole Foods was trying to change how people thought about food. Right? And uh, Jordan's Furniture here was trying to change the way furniture was sold, and CarMax was trying to change the way used cars were sold, and Southwest Airlines was reinventing the, uh, you know, uh, aviation business, and so forth. Right? So that sense of a higher purpose was also something that we started to see as a pattern. And then beyond that, we, we saw that the leaders were very different of these companies. They were not your imperial-style CEOs, command and control, top-down, extremely highly paid, you know, operating just by the numbers and so forth. But they came up through, came up through the ranks, in many cases, of founders. Uh, they deeply cared about the purpose. They deeply cared about the people, right? They were, you know, they were not military-style leaders, and they were not mercenary leaders just about money. They were missionary leaders, and people followed them, and uh, they inspired people. Um, and lastly, the culture. So these cultures, we found there was a lot of trust and fun, like Southwest Airlines has a lot of fun, and also caring. And there wasn't the typical fear and stress that you see in so we discovered this pattern. So that book, as you know, became Firms of India. In between, we called it Share of Heart, uh, which refers to the fact that there's a lot of love in these businesses. Mm -hmm. Customers love them, employees love them. You know, uh, but then our editor, publishers, they, you know, they were pushing back against that title. They thought it was kind of, you know, they said marketing used to be about share of market, then became share of wallet, and now you're talking about share of heart. You know, they thought it was just another cynical, you know, attempt by marketing <laughs> to try to bur burrow its way into your... You know. I said, next thing you're going to be saying share of soul or something. <laughs> so they pushed back. So anyway, we ended up with firms of endearment. And, um, you know, then we brought in the lens to just look for companies that were loved. And then we got hundreds of nominations and we then looked at these dimensions were starting to gel in our minds. So we said, is there a purpose? You know, is there a stakeholder mindset, etc." And we basically eliminated companies if they fell short on any of those dimensions and any of the stakeholders. So they could be great for four or five stakeholders, but if they really had a problem with the sixth one, then we said, no, that's not good enough. You know, so by doing that, we ended up with 28 companies out of the hundreds, uh, 18 public and 10 private. And uh, of course, all this time, we hadn't done any financial analysis. We simply said, as long as they are going concerned, they're not under the threat of bankruptcy, that's okay. So we're not we're not selecting companies on the basis of financial performance here. We're selecting on the on the basis of doing things that that generates this kind of love. And and I have to assume that that you and your co-authors and the research you, you did you decide to dig into the financial performance and if so, what'd you find? Yes, after the fact, right? So we yeah. had our final list of yeah. companies, and then we wrote down our hypotheses. We said, okay, from what we have seen about these companies, they're paying their people well. In some cases, very well. So the container store pays double. The prevailing industry average, uh, Costco pays double of Walmart, 60% higher than Sam's Club. Um, all of them provide much better benefits, healthcare especially, 
Costco was covering 100% of healthcare at that time. Now it's about 96%. Uh, Starbucks was famous for covering even part-time employees. Um, they were investing in their customers and customer care. Uh, they were paying their suppliers well. Their suppliers were not being squeezed. Suppliers were profitable. Uh, they were investing in their communities. They were investing in their environment. They were paying taxes at a higher rate. We had a chart in the book which showed the marginal tax rate or the effective tax rate paid by these companies. And with the exception of Amazon, which had accumulated losses going back years, so they weren't paying taxes, but everybody else was averaging 34% at a time when big companies in America were routinely paying zero or a single digit. Right? So these companies were not trying to avoid taxes. So we said, you know, they're spending a lot of money in a lot of things, so maybe investor returns are okay. We still think, we still thought they would be good because these are good businesses and they're growing. But they're not trying to maximize shareholder returns. So we said, so even if they perform on par with the market, we were prepared to write that story, that here's a whole bunch of value that's not being captured uh, when we look at companies, you know, purely through the shareholder lens, because, you know, their customers are better off, employees, communities are healthier, environment, etc. So we need to capture all of that to show that, yeah, this is a better way of being in business. What we found, in fact, was that their financial performance was dramatically better than the average as well. So not only were they doing all these other things, they were also outperforming financially. In fact, nine to one over a 10-year period in that set that we had now. We recognized that, you know, that wasn't systematically the only such companies or it wasn't necessarily a fully representative set. We had a somewhat higher representation of retailers. We had a higher representation of consumer businesses rather than industry B2B. But, you know, despite all of that, and we said there's still something, you know, nine to one outperformance, right, over a 10-year period. So that's really, you know, we had a bunch of awakenings in this research, but that was the biggest and the last one to say, wow, so there's a way of being in business that creates all this other kind of well-being, but also creates more financial wealth as well. And it can, it's not a trade-off, it's not a choice, right, that you pick one path or the other that you can do both, right? You know, we said there's an expression in business, there's no free lunch, right? Which means that everything is a trade-off. And we're discovering that, well, in fact, there is a free lunch in a sense that, you know, you have enough for your investors, but you've got enough for everybody else. And you can also, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too, in a way, right? And you can donate some to the local, uh, you know, food shelter and you can start a cooking school. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do. In other words, businesses create so many different kinds of value and they can do them all together. So that was a big, big revelation to us. And it's, initially we thought we had... It sounds like that... Initially we thought maybe we made a mistake, you know, we yeah, analyzed sure. all the data. And then we started to focus on understanding why this might be. You know? and that's kind of been an ongoing journey. Yeah, so so with that, with that question of why might this be, it sounds like uh, this this research that you and your co-authors did uh, in many ways almost led to the crystallization of the tenets of conscious capitalism. Is is that correct, incorrect? Yes, uh, yeah. So uh, we have them all in the book. We have somewhat different language, but, you know, the subtitle is how world-class companies profit from passion and purpose. Right. Right. So we talked about purpose there. You know, we had all the stakeholders stuff there. We have, we had, I don't know if you had a separate chapter on leadership in there. We certainly had one on culture. 
And so I think over time we did, uh, you know, distill and, and then when by the time we got to the next book, you know, we had those, those tenets well understood. Um, but we did start to understand that, you know, okay, they're spending more money in, 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 in various ways by paying people and providing better benefits and et cetera. But the big thing is that they're not wasting money on, on other things. Right? So they spend very little on marketing. Right. And that's one of the biggest areas of spending. Yep. They get the benefit of the best marketing, which is free marketing. Yep. Word of mouth marketing, loyal customers, yeah. people who fall in love with their brands, who are willing to right. promote them because they believe in what they stand for. Right. I mean, as Kip Tindall says, you know, the whole universe conspires to assist you when you run a business this way. Yeah. You know, your customers want to have your employees. Everybody's word of mouth. Yep. Right? Yep. So it's a lot easier to succeed in business when everybody is uh, conspiring to assist you rather yeah. than if they're staying awake at night trying to figure out how to screw you. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, as you, as you create that, those conditions. Yeah, as you think about, you know, perhaps in hindsight, the, the 28 companies of the 100 uh, that made the, the final list, and you think about their leadership teams, I'm curious, did you look at or have you looked at what the percentage of uh, women leaders on the leadership teams was as compared to perhaps the other 72 or so that uh, that didn't make it or to some of the other consideration sets. Did they have more parity between male, female leaders at the senior leadership table? You know, we did not look at that at the time. Uh, but I've seen research now that I know shows that, that that is the case, that there is evidence that shows that companies that have women uh, in leadership, on the board, etc. Not only outperform in the long term financially, but there are a whole bunch of other ways in which they're better. You know, they're more ethical, they're better places to work, you know, they have a better impact on the environment, and so forth. Um, so that's definitely something that we become more and more conscious of. We started to see the rise of so-called feminine values, not only embodied in, in having more women, but actually even the men who are leading these companies very much integrate the masculine and feminine dimension. And that has not been true historically. You can go back and find very, very few leaders in government uh, or in business who embodied any of the feminine values, nurturing, caring, compassion, you know, relationships, all of those kinds of things. I mean, you know, we label them feminine, masculine. They're all human qualities. Right. But historically, we have not valued those and they have not been uh, prominent in, in leaders. And now we're starting to see that that combination is very powerful, mature masculine with mature feminine. And if any, if you had to weight it one side or the other, it's really weighted now more towards the feminine value. Yeah, and this is this is some work that uh, you're very focused on right now. Yeah, I know you have a book coming out here within the next month uh, or six weeks or so at the most, Uh talking about the embracing of feminine and masculine uh, qualities and power in business. And, and if hopefully I say it correctly, is it uh, Shakti leadership? That's right. Shakti leadership uh, should be out uh, sometime in early April. And it is a book that uh, builds on that idea. It's embracing feminine and masculine power. And we put the word feminine first because that's what's been lacking. And that's what's been denigrated and downplayed and suppressed in almost all of human history, and not just in business, every societal institution has been run by men based on a limited set of masculine values. Domination, aggression, ambition, winning results at all costs, zero-sum thinking, trade-offs, right, win-lose mindset. 
So it has caused a lot of suffering. It has caused a lot of pain. Well, yeah, it seems to be a lot of, gain. A lot of corruption, a lot of environmental impact, social breakdown, uh, depression, uh, a, a, a lot of what, what the pharmaceutical companies might refer to as side effects. Yes, but those side effects can overwhelm. Absolutely. You know, we lose we lose what is really valuable in pursuit of that which is fleeting and and shallow. And I think that's been human history, right? One war after another. I think I think England and France alone have fought six hundred wars or something in their history. You know, Europe has had twelve hundred wars. I mean, it's crazy. Every war, you know, ends and plants a seed for the next one. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been human history. Yeah. And tremendous untold amounts of suffering. And pain have been inflicted by human beings on other human beings. And on, of course, animals and the planet as well. And we think it's time to rise beyond that and finally embrace this whole other dimension of human beings that's just been lying there dormant, you know. Uh, Lynn Twist, who we interviewed for the book, had a beautiful way of putting it. You know, She calls this Sophia century. That If you look at the last three centuries, the uh, 19th century was about the end of slavery around the world. The 20th century was about the end of totalitarianism in most of the world. And the 21st century will be about the end of this sort of patriarchal domination you know, of the world and suppression of women. And finally, women rise to uh, their equal and sh- fair shared position in this world. Where did the word uh, Shakti come from? Shakti is an Indian word that refers to, uh, it, it actually translates literally to power or energy, right? Uh, but if you look in the Indian tradition, the spiritual tradition, Shakti is embodied in uh, feminine goddesses. So all of the power of the universe, the creative generative force, see women are the ones who give birth, right? Yes, yes. And so everything that gets created and everything that grows, um, it really is seen and depicted as sort of this feminine energy of the universe, right? So you have the Shiva, which is representative of the masculine, which is, which is kind of the consciousness, right? But it's kind of still. And, you know, it's, uh, it's discernment and focus and all of that. But then you have Shakti, which is kind of the dynamic element, which is what powers everything, right? And But the idea is that when you think about power, because, you know, we do need power, right? Things don't move without power. But how have we generated power and used power in the past? It has been power over people, right? It has been ego-based power. It has been power that is used to sort of, uh, you know, plant your will on other people and, and get and make them do things that you want them to do for your for your purposes. But there's another kind of power that's power with people where the leader essentially is channeling power, right, that's coming through him or her in order to do the things that are naturally evolving that need to be done. In other words, you're an instrument of what needs to evolve. If you start to think about, you know, the evolution, that evolution has a purpose. Steve McIntosh has a book called Evolution's Purpose, right? That, you know, this, this world is not just evolving, the universe in a way is not evolving through random mutations that there is a trajectory to this. And we are evolving towards higher states of being and higher levels of mutuality and embrace and oneness and love and all of those kinds of things. That's kind of the direction that we are in. And if we can be an agent of that, right, 
if we are in harmony, if we are going with the grain, if we are going with the current, then we have access to almost infinite power. Right? We can, we are simply the agent of, of harnessing and, and channeling that, you know, but we don't have to extract it from people. We can actually make them more powerful as we're leading them. Because now we are, you know, having that sense of purpose, for example, gives us all of that power because now we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Yeah, and it, you know, that's it, the it, idea. That's the idea. And, and it seems that, you know, as, as we think about capitalism as the greatest, it's just the greatest system that the human race has ever created to help lift people out of extreme abject poverty. You know, over the last many years, capitalism has been smeared in the media and the public eye, uh, is seen as power over people, uh, is seen as the rich continue to get richer at the expense of everybody else uh, moving in the other direction. And is an incredibly misunderstood system. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you have been beating the drum loudly for conscious capitalism, what do you sense is the future? What, what, how are you seeing things? Maybe some recent examples of meetings you've been at. I know you've had some pretty interesting opportunities in D.C. with our labor secretary. You were in New York City not too terribly long ago meeting with some large uh, company CEOs what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you sensing as the future of capitalism? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting moment we're in. There's, on the one hand, rising recognition of the power of this system and what it has done, especially in the last 200 years, that really we've had it. Dramatic changes in material well-being and, and billions lifted out of extreme abject poverty and also huge impacts in, in human population, human life, life expectancy and literacy and many other things have risen along with that. Uh, at the same time, there's rising consciousness about some of those unintended consequences or side effects or, um, uh, you know, negative things that have happened because it has come at a price. You know, it has, you know, if you look at uh, public health, if you look at the amount of stress, if you look at what's happened to the environment, if you look at what's happening to species, right? if you look at what's happening to the bees, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that we are doing things in a way that is certainly not sustainable because, you know, we've had an extractive mindset and we have re relied upon non-renewable resources and we have also extracted from human beings and we have, we have called people human resources and we have treated them like that. And when you do that, then, you know, like a lump of coal, a resource will burn out. But the fact is human beings are a source, right? And, but, you know, we have to figure out how to channel but that extraordinary power that's in people, it comes through them if they are inspired, if they are in spirit, right? if they are operating with purpose and meaning and so forth. So I think we this mindset shift is about getting away from the extractive mindset and towards this idea of, of aligning people and connecting them to the higher source, the higher purpose, and then generating the kinds of change that we will need. We cannot deliver prosperity to, to those who have already become accustomed to it and to the billions who still don't have it. Right? I mean, we talk about the uh, number of people living on less than $1.25 a day is down to about 13 14% from 85 90% that it was historically, and that's great, of course. But the number of people living on less than $3 a day is still about $3 billion, right? and that's almost half the world's population. 
So by no means can we say mission accomplished and declare victory. There's a lot more to be done. And the fact is that if you simply spread the existing way of doing things, the way that we achieved this prosperity in the West in the last 100 years, if we try to replicate that on a global scale for seven, uh, heading to nine billion people, uh, we will destroy our planet and destroy each other in the process. So we need to reinvent just about everything. Every major aspect of our lives, whether it's energy or food or transportation or anything, it has to be reinvented. And that, where is that going to come from? It's going to come from human ingenuity. And when does human ingenuity get engaged? When people are feeling safe, when people feel inspired, right? When people have a sense of shared purpose, etc. So Traditional organizations where the vast majority of people are disengaged, where most people, 88%, feel the company doesn't care about them as human beings, where that toxicity is then spreading into their children and families and their communities. Because when you feel a certain way at work, that affects everything. Right? So there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of urgency that unless we change all of that, we are not going to be able to tap into what is our really only hope in this world, which is human ingenuity, to help us get the way forward, you know, find new answers to every question. And I think the way that we best do that is by creating these kinds of conscious organizations that do, in fact, provide the conditions under which human beings can flourish and reveal the extraordinary gifts that they are carrying with them. You know, it's like the energy inside an atom was locked away for all of history, right? until just a few decades ago, and we discovered a way to extract or, or release that energy. And it literally blew us away. And that's inside human beings. Far more, in fact. So, you know, think about how much there is. In, human beings have a, almost divine capacities. But uh, most of us die with our music still inside us. It never, ever gets released. And, and the fact is that human beings are becoming more capable and more intelligent over time. But our organizations are suppressing them. Well, and it, uh, you know, what, what resonates for me, a quote that, that you shared, uh, and I believe it was in the Firms of Endearment book the, from Tom Stoppard's Arcadia that refers to, and if I, if I butcher it, I apologize, something to the effect of, you know, it's a wonderful time to be alive when almost everything you thought you knew was wrong. And, and when, when students are graduating from business school today and joining the business communities and leaders who have been in the business world for a number of years have finally risen to the top and are operating under a mental model of command and control and hierarchical and uh, militaristic and power and trade-offs and zero sum. You know, these are, this is the set of received wisdom that uh, obviously got us to where we're at, but it's not going to be the wisdom that's going to carry us to where we need to go. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why we have to reinvent everything. And, you know, we can't do that under our existing system. Because right now we're just educating people essentially to implement uh, what's already there. Yeah. To a large extent. Yeah. But, you know, we have all the pieces that we need. As I said, we've got 7 billion people in the world, 7.3. And if you look at the IQ, if you just look at IQ data, right? The average person today would have been in the top 2% of IQ in 1935. Wow. They would have been considered a near genius. Yeah. Right? That's the average person today. Wow. So how many geniuses do we have in the world today compared to what we had 100 years ago? Yeah. You know? But a genius, it doesn't matter if you don't have the education, if you don't have the... Uh, 
you know, the organizational context, if you don't have the capital, you don't have the tools, you know, you don't have the team. So all of the pieces are there, but, you know, we have to be the uh, designers of the system so that that can, we can, we can then deploy that towards our shared uh, well-being. And I think that's, that's the great opportunity that we have right now. Well, I think that is a, a, a wonderful place to leave on a very optimistic high note. Uh, Raj, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. I know uh, our listeners are going to find tremendous value in your story and the work uh, that you are currently pursuing. Uh, again, I do want to mention the book uh, that's coming out here, uh, Shakti Leadership, uh, with your co-author, uh, Nilma Bhatt, uh, here. At the, you said the beginning of April, is that correct? Yes, the official publication date is May something, but the book will be available, I think, as of April 4th or 5th. Excellent. 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 Well, Raj, I cannot thank you enough again for spending the time with us. Uh, wish you the absolute best as you continue uh, your purpose and uh, just really want to thank you. So uh, have a wonderful, wonderful year, and we look forward to hopefully chatting with you sometime soon. Thank you, Brian. I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank Wonderful. You. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I have two additional things for you. One, I'm hoping to get some bonus questions answered by Raj from our community. So if you have any questions you'd like Raj to answer, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com with your question, and I'll certainly forward it on. Second thing, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple of others I think you'll love as well. Patty McCord, former Netflix chief talent officer and the current principal at Patty McCord Consulting, talks to us about how we can be innovative when it comes to our work. And Michelle Geelan, founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research, and the author of Broadcasting Happiness, The Science of Igniting and Sustaining Positive Change, talks to us about the power of how we broadcast our messages. Once again, that URL is yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.